0: Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. We continue along in our series of untwisting some troubling passages in the Bible, with today focusing on passages that have been interpreted as a call to arms. These passages are especially interesting within an American context, which is a culture that values the right to gun ownership and the right to self-defense, even by deadly force. So what might the text be saying about weapons and the use of deadly force? And also very important, what context should we be aware of when reading these texts? And these are just some of the answers Pastor Ben will attempt to answer for us. And so with that, I hope you enjoy and find some valuable insight.
1: My friends over here, I went to say peace of Christ to them, and they said, they threw me a, a hand grenade of peace. They, they went like this. And I'm like, well, you just became a sermon illustration for <laughs> talking about taking up weapons in the name of the Lord, right? Um, but we're, uh, we are looking at a few, these are two passages that I consistently get um, questions about as a pastor whether it's email through email or in person these passages tend to be one of those ones that people get stuck on and, and wonder about so just wanted to look at them with you today and kind of unpack them a little bit there are a lot of uh, a few references to swords in the new testament but we're going to look at two specifically today the first one comes from Luke 22 verse 36 and Jesus says to his disciples let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one now in the first century it's really under it's really important to understand that like a person's cloak was everything it's not just a, a nice jacket <laughs> it's it's also can be shelter like there's so many sandstorms and things in that part of the world so it's it's a it's a person's it's one of the most prized possessions is a cloak so to sell a cloak for a sword that's a that's a big deal right the next verse comes from the book of Matthew, Matthew ten thirty four, And Jesus says to his disciples, I have not come to bring peace, but again, a sword to the world. Um, and I, I tend to, you know, I... I had a bigger issue with this one than the other one growing up because I didn't understand what Jesus meant. I thought he was the Prince of Peace. You know, Christmas is all about peace to the world, right? So what, what does Jesus mean by saying this statement? And both these chapters from Luke 22 and Matthew 10 is in the context of Jesus sending out the disciples to the world. So he is not only saying these things to his disciples, but it's it's as they're disembarking onto ministry throughout the rest of the world. So what he says to them here is going to shape their ministry in the world, and it's gonna shape how we kind of interpret and define our own relationship with Jesus as well. So when when we take these verses all on their own by themselves, it gives us a really interesting and maybe unsettling picture of Jesus, right? Right? And I I think that's one of the most important lessons about this. Um, Verses by themselves out of the Bible can be really powerful, really thought-provoking, like, for God so loved the world. Right? Really powerful verse, right? There's not a lot of harm you can do with John (laughs) 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, right? There's there's a beautiful meaning there. When you take passages like this, can't understand what they mean without the verses right before them and the verses after them, right? We can't really understand either without understanding the world behind the text as well and what Jesus meant as a person in his time period by these things too. And so when we just take them at face value, they can become damaging and harmful rather than helpful, which is what the scriptures are trying to compel us to understand, This brings us an unsettling picture, I think, because we know the Jesus who rides a donkey instead of a war horse into Jerusalem. We know the Jesus who washes feet rather than holds a gavel in a courtroom. Um, we, we know the Jesus who tells Peter to put the sword away rather than to arm himself against his enemies. And so it kind of unsettles our picture of Jesus when we just take these verses at face value. Um, I, while I was studying this passage, these two passages this week, I just googled Jesus with a sword, an image search on Google. Dangerous thing to do. Um, <laughs> these are a few I found. I found this one, um, and this this is an uh, an Orthodox icon of Jesus that was painted in the 1300s, and it's one of the rarest icons. Like you're not going to see a lot of icons with Jesus as a sword, right? And we'll, we'll get back to that one later. But that's painted on a Orthodox sanctuary um, in, in the Eastern world. And then this one was right next to it. Rambo Jesus. I was like, oh my word. And then it just got worse from there. We went and then I saw this one. I don't know if that's Western Jesus, like that's a Winchester, which won the West apparently. And so we put that in Jesus' hands and he doesn't look like a first century Jewish person, does he? More like David Hasselhoff or the bounty, you know, (laughs) towel, paper towel dude. Like that's what I think of. So I'm like, who is this guy dressed in a robe in Idaho with a Winchester, right? That's what I felt like. Um, but let's go back to that, that first one. This is an icon of the uh, Orthodox Church that was painted in the 1300s. And it, every time an icon was painted, there's an interpretation from the church along with it, right? And it emphatically says, in the, and this is the 1300s, that this is not an actual sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. That Jesus comes to take the sword against not the world, but to separate the world from sin. So sin is the enemy and evil is the enemy and death is the enemy that Jesus comes to bring the sword against, according to this icon, right? So whenever the Orthodox Christians would look at this icon, they would see as the inscription there (laughs) says that this is not an actual sword. This is the sword of the spirit that has come to separate the world from sin. And it's actually used by the the first verse we're going to look at, which is Matthew 10, 34. Um, Let's look at the, the verses that come right before and after what Jesus says here, that I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 14. He has just named the 12 disciples by name. And then he says this, These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Arm yourselves to the teeth and overthrow Rome. Is that what your translation says? Oh, wait. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is what this looks like. Healing the sick raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And then this incredible saying, freely you have received and freely you give. So this is the power that they have received through Christ. And what does that power look like? Not a violent overthrow, but it looks like healing the sick the dead being raised, cleansing of those who are sick, even those who have leprosy, and even driving out demons. Freely they have received this power, so freely they share that with others, leading to the empowerment of others, the redemption of others, the restoration of others, not the destruction of others. And then he goes on, do not get any gold or silver, copper, take with you uh, with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. In whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter their home, give it your greeting, which would be shalom, the peace. If the home is deserving, let your peace, your shalom, rest on it. If it is not If they do not receive your peace, burn it to the ground. I mean, let your shalom return to you, right? If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, again, not burn it to the ground. Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Right, so we're, not res- we're responding with shalom. Jesus is saying generosity is what you're going to look for. Look for generous people. Look for people who are participating with peace, with shalom. Rely on their shalom and bring shalom to them. Heal their sick, restore the people among them, and let them take care of you too. Stay with their house, let them be hospitable to you and you be hospitable to them. This is building a community of generosity and hospitality. This isn't going town to town and saying, repent or burn, (laughs) right? It's a very different gospel right? When you're saying repent or burn, it's different than shalom is with you. And like, I don't know, I'm not with your shalom. Like, okay, I'll shake the dust off my feet and go elsewhere. This is is a very different gospel compared to the picture of Jesus driving disciples to take towns perhaps by force. And then Jesus goes on, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, they're again kind of driving out this, this this they're not wolves among sheep right i am sending you out to be sheep among wolves therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves be on your guard you will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues on my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them governors and kings who were there the the people who were occupying their land, (laughs) to be witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say at that time. You will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus is obviously then using, and this is all right before that verse, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And Jesus goes on and says, there will be division between father and son, son and father, um, daughter and mother, mother and daughter, daughter against mother-in-law, no surprise there, son against, (laughs) uh, but there's there's these divisions that happen with the sword that Jesus brings in the world. And so right there, we have to understand that if he's talking about relationships that this sword is going to bring division between, he's probably not talking about a literal sword, right? (laughs) And this is all the buildup to it as well, not talking about literal swords either. Jesus is making a metaphorical point about the mission of the gospel in the world, that the way he has come to bring in the world will cause division among family, friends, and beyond because he has come to bring a different way, a way of nonviolence, a way of peace, a way of restoration in a world that is contrary to those things. He has come to bring a way that elevates the oppressed, does not exploit and profit from the exploitation of people. That is a different way in the world. And those who are committed to one way over the other is going to naturally cause division. But for the broader picture of peace, sometimes those divisions will happen, even in our homes. So as he is using the sword here, is best seen as the word, which the book of Revelation talks about the scriptures being sharper than any double-edged sword. Separating the world from sin, from evil, from darkness, from death. That's the division that Jesus is talking about. To save creation from futility, death, and evil. Yet it will also bring division to those who insist on staying in the ways of violence and evil rather than following in the way of peace. All right, so now that we've kind of unpacked that one a little bit, let's look at that second verse from the Gospel of Luke, which is a bit more difficult to understand. If this truly is the Prince of Peace, why is he telling his followers to arm themselves? If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Being born and raised in Idaho, guns have always been a part of a central part of life here, right? I make the joke often to people who are not from Idaho, yeah, when you're born here, they give you a birth certificate and a Glock. <laughs> That's just kind of was my, my, my upbringing. I grew up target shooting. First time I held a gun was when I was seven years old, and people from the Midwest and the East, they're just like, what is happening in Idaho, Right? I grew up target shooting, hunting, and with friends and family, and eventually went through the training course required to obtain my concealed weapons license, and I concealed carried for for many years. And in gun culture like Idaho, and oftentimes it would coalesce with the Christian culture in Idaho as well, different sermon, different time, um, but this passage from Luke especially would be used as scriptural validation for the Second Amendment, but also as a way of Jesus directly condoning the use of deadly force. So when a recent poll conducted by the University of Maryland, I thought about this dynamic. It was published by the Washington Post as well, and it found that one in three Americans, one in three Americans say that violence against the government can be justified. One in three and that's across political lines as well. One in three Americans believe that violence against the government can be justified. So as Christians who have loud political voices, for better or for worse sometimes, using passages like Luke 22:36 36 in this way can be increasingly problematic. So let's read this verse again in the context of the rest of the verses. Luke 22:36 36 through 38. He, Jesus, said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, again, preparing them for their discipleship journey, and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough. He replied. And I did that, you know, because there's an exclamation point there in the Greek too. (laughs) That's enough, right? And then they moved on. Now, when we take just this verse again at face value, it would seem that Jesus is condoning the use of deadly force might be exactly what he's getting at here. However, it's very important to read this verse in the context of what he was meaning here and also the rest of Christ's ministry and life on earth. Otherwise, we might find ourselves unwittingly dismissing the many, many times that Jesus urged his followers to turn the other cheek and not resist evil when confronted by violence during his Sermon on the Mount and years of ministry. Jesus is actually very clear in this passage, and I'm sure many of you caught it already. He's very clear at what he means by this command for his disciples to have swords on hand. It is the fulfillment of prophecy. As he quotes in this very passage from Isaiah 53, 9 through 12, it was pros- prophesied that Jesus would be counted among the transgressors. His disciples having swords on hand would fulfill this prophecy as he would be seen by the political and religious authorities to be among the rebels, <laughs> right? Right? In response to this command his disciples say see lord here we have two swords to which Jesus responds that's enough exclamation point Again we must ask enough for what enough for what if if they were wanting to lead an uprising or protect themselves against the Roman army would two swords be enough Thirteen dudes against the Roman army? Or let's just say the religious or political elites in Rome. Would two swords be enough? That would be akin to a band of rebels bringing in AR-15 to a drone fight, right? However, two swords are certainly enough to fulfill prophecy that he is among the band of brigands in the eyes of the authorities. It is crucial then to understand that Jesus is consciously fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah here. Otherwise, this command to his disciples would make no sense. And we must also remember that Peter draws one of these swords a few hours later at Jesus' own arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, slashing the ear of one of the priest's na- servants named Malchus. And Jesus rebukes Peter by saying those famous words, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Matthew 26:52. And while we're pondering, this is what really, really gets me. While we're pondering Old Testament prophecy here, both Isaiah and Micah had the same prophecy. When the Son of Man comes, when the Messiah comes, the one true king comes, all weapons will be hammered down into plowshares and pruning hooks, garden tools, and the nations will no longer learn war anymore. That's Micah and Isaiah. How fitting is it then that in a very garden, Jesus says to put your sword away because citizens of the kingdom that he rules over are not known for learning war anymore, but for repurposing all the world's weapons to cultivate gardens instead. Such a powerful, powerful image there that the kingdoms of heaven are not making war. We're making gardens for the cultivation of the world and the redemption of the world, not the destruction of it or its people. Taking this context into consideration really helps us to understand Christ's words in this passage here as they were intended. This is not to debate the morality or theology of self-defense. That is a different sermon for a different time. This is just to say that this passage in Luke, and I would argue the rest of Christ's years of ministry, can't be used to justify the use of deadly violence in the name of Jesus Christ. My friends, I've long believed that really the greatest threat to our witness as Christians in the world is not secularism or pluralism or or even the loss of religious liberties. Rather, I believe the greatest threat to our witness as Christians in the world is Christians who claim to follow a nonviolent teacher from Nazareth who then turn and use violence in his name to enforce and preserve their own power. It was true when Peter drew his sword in the garden, and it was true when the emperor Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire in Rome, and it's still true when we do that today. We who call ourselves Christians in such a politically polarized time such as these we must always be suspect of any attempt to justify lethal violence in the name of Jesus, especially when our own sacred texts are used to do so. I want to end my sermon today with this quote from uh, a Bible commentary uh, on this passage written in 1977. Uh, The commentators wrote, finally Jesus spoke of this new situation, the situation of the kingdom of heaven. Formerly, when the disciples had gone out on mission, they had not lacked anything. Now they would need a purse, a bag, and even a sword. The saying is heavily ironical, for Jesus knew that now he would have to face universal opposition and be put to death. But the disciples misunderstood him and produced weapons. That is enough, said Jesus, to end a conversation which they had failed to understand. The way of Jesus is should have known was not the way of the sword, but the way of love. So just a few action steps this week to maybe bring this home for us. What swords do you take up and why? You know, Paul talks about the armor of the Lord and the sword of the Spirit as one of those things that we're supposed to be equipped with. But do we really understand the nature of the swords that we're taking up? Because we you know i feel like i know all of you pretty well i don't think any one of you even owns a sword let alone would take it up against other people okay so here in this place we think about our words because in scripture we learn something about words in genesis to revelation words have the power to create right and words have the power to destroy so how do we how do we see our words as potential swords Are are they bringing the division to separate people from injustice? To separate people from, from oppression? To separate people from sin? Or are they used to make people the problem? Because when we make people the problem, we are attacking them rather than the things that control them. One of the reasons Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword is because he's talking about the powers and principalities that control the human heart rather than the humans themselves. And so what swords are we taking up and why? Are we going after the powers and principalities that control us, like greed, lust, pride, envy, or are we making people the problem and attacking them instead? Number two, Jesus heals the one wounded by a follower of his using his sword against him. So how do we respond by those hurt by the church? Um, this has become a, a people group that has continued to really grow and be vocal lately. People who have really, really struggled and been harmed by the church, church leaders. Uh, you know, you don't have to look far to see allegations of, of abuse, misconduct, um, the worship of political power, so many things that have hurt people and harmed them deeply. And whenever I advocate for this people group, especially online, I'll get messages about you need to be nicer to the church. Are we here to, are we, at, we so, so people are the church if we haven't gotten that yet, right? It's not an institution. It's not a building. People, the body of Christ, the Greek word ekklesia means called out people, Not called out building or called out institution. It is to be a unique people, ecclesia, the church. So when the church says we need to protect the institution over the people, especially the people it has hurt, we don't know what the church is called to be. (laughs) So how are we responding to those hurt by the church Peter cuts off the ear of someone and Jesus heals him and tells Peter to put the sword away. How are we responding that way to those who've been hurt by the church, religious authorities? Are we acting in healing or are we acting like Peter with the sword? And lastly, we can't carry a cross and a sword at the same time, right? The way of the cross leads to all weapons being repurposed into garden tools. And I would say this is the important part of understanding the sword as the metaphor of the spirit. That as we are walking in the way of the self-sacrificial love of Christ, that we are then laying down our arms and our weapons to be that humble picture of who Jesus was for us.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.